Every week, we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Today, we have Brandon Farbstein, who is going to join us. He was an Instagram's 19 under 19 as one of the 19 most influential teenagers in the world with his mission to elevate empathy. He's also was a driving force behind two new pieces of legislation that were signed into law in Virginia, one on bullying, one on bullying prevention, and the other on requiring empathy and emotional intelligence to be taught K through 12 classrooms. Uh, He also, in 2020, made his runway debut at New York Fashion Week wearing Tommy Hilfiger, adaptive, and has become, you know, a, a great guy, a voice in the in the whole community. Brandon, thank you so much for joining us. Chris, thanks for having me. Excited to chat with you. This is awesome. And going through your, your introduction there, I mean, some of the high points, and I realize there are a whole lot of other high points. You're a TEDx speaker, for a TEDx speaker at 15 years old. But, uh, you know, these things came about as a result of a precipitating event. How did you take something that getting cyberbullied that could be so difficult and turn it into something that really has kind of become your life's work? Absolutely. So with all of those high points in mind that you just mentioned, what you can't really tell whether you're watching on screen or listening to the podcast I stand at three foot nine, thanks to a very rare form of dwarfism that I was born with. And when I say rare, there are less than 84 cases reported in medical history. So that's a pretty um, indicating factor that it's a life of uncertainty. There's absolutely no roadmap to follow. But for me, I really spent the first half of my life resenting being so different and standing out as much as I did. Not so much that I was being bullied in my younger years, but I just hated the fact that I was so unlike all of the other kids around me. And then it reached a point when I was in high school, like you mentioned, and the cyberbullying just got so severe that I started receiving a new death threat nearly every week from the peers at my school. And death threats, is this what the the bullying was? I mean, death threats are are huge. Like you can't just sort of shake off. It's not a joke, right, absolutely. You can't shake off a death threat. And and, and so this is, that was the form of the bullying where the death threats were there forms of it? Yeah. Yeah. Was Um, it physical, mental, emotional, you know? No, it it really was all cyberbullying, which, I honestly think was the worst form that it could be because that followed me everywhere. It was 24 seven. You could definitely walk out of the school environment and be away from that, but you could never really walk away from your cell phone and social media, especially if you're a teenager trying to stay in touch and and be connected with all of the uh, friends that you are trying to have. Um, So it, really was a traumatic experience and it travels too right it's not just if you're getting bullied in your high school that is one thing but if you're getting cyber bullied 
that's going to Australia. It's going to, you know, it's, it's everywhere in the world, right? Not so much with me. It was very okay. centralized with my high school okay. um, at the time, because at that point I really didn't have a following or a platform. So that's really where the origin of it started. And they used the mission that I started on as a freshman in high school. When I was 15, I gave that TEDx talk and I thought it would make things a little bit better in a way for my peers to understand who I really am, that I'm not just the kid on the Segway as they referred to me as because I rode around on this uh, pretty cool looking yellow Lamborghini, like very flashy Segway type thing as my mobility device, which was a total lifesaver for me. Describe why it's a lifesaver though, please. Well, for a couple of reasons. Number one, when you are three foot nine and you're surrounded by a high school environment of nearly 2000 kids that tower over you, you could imagine number one, how scary that is, but also logistically, it, it just doesn't really work. But for me specifically in my body, I have trouble walking long distances. And while this high school wasn't like a college campus per se, it was very spread out from having to go from one end to the building to the other um, in between periods and that sort of thing. So I really needed a device that could take me where my legs couldn't speed wise or whether I was in pain, that sort of thing. So it really was a game changer for the experience that I had. But again, it drew the worst type of attention. And so it was fuel for a lot of these students who had no clue who I even was. Uh, they, they saw this guy that was clearly unlike them. And unfortunately, it seems like I was target number one. And it was so relentless until I decided to just leave that environment and continue the rest of my education online, which was about halfway through my junior year. And that's kind of what launched everything else. When I was able to get the laws passed, my book was written, I became a full-time professional speaker, all of those things. But it took having to go through that really horrific experience to then get to the end result of who it brought, it, brought me out to be. So you went from being an object of ridicule uh, from death threats to then deciding that you wanted to be in front of the group. And also, I mean, you mentioned your, your Lamborghini, your yellow Lamborghini Segway. You had to go and raise money for that, for that Segway in order, to, in order to be able to get around because, I mean, you did describe that, that you didn't want to be in a wheelchair. So what made you say, okay, People are pointing at me because I'm different. I'm going to get in front of the group, which in some ways sounds like the scariest thing that you could do. What, what, how, did, how did that thought process work for you? In a lot of ways, it really presented itself to me. So I was in the airport with my family and we were traveling to visit relatives. It was like a, a pretty nonchalant thing. And again, I was on this mobility device and it 
pretty much drew a lot of attention wherever I went. And so a woman saw me in line in TSA and came up to me and just started asking me a bunch of questions. What is this cool device? What do you use it for? What's your name? What condition do you have? And she was just very inquisitive. So we talked for a couple of minutes, but then we went on our separate ways and she ended up being on our flight. So we were at the same gate and continued the conversation for about 40 minutes. And it turns out this woman ended up being one of the first originators of the TEDx conferences. So I think she was number three or four in the world to ever put on a TEDx event. And when I heard that, I immediately was intrigued and I perked up because I watched TED Talks with my mom after school literally all the time. And I distinctly remember having a conversation with her. How cool would it be to one day share my story on that platform? But never legitimately thinking that it would be a reality. And this woman and I ended up connecting and exchanged information. And she found out there was a local event happening in Richmond, Virginia, just a few months later, TEDxRBA. And she got me in the door with the curation team and they brought me on to become a speaker. And this truly defied anything that I thought I was capable of doing. I didn't really know what being a speaker was, what truly sharing your story meant and the power that it has to show up authentically and with vulnerability, not necessarily on a stage full of 1,500 plus people as I did when I was 15, but just showing up as yourself and sharing that with those around you is life-changing. And I'm so blessed to have discovered that at 15 because it really showed me this purpose that I found that was so much bigger than me. And that really led me to the mission that I've been on ever since to elevate empathy as a speaker, an author, activist, and using my voice in as many ways as I can. It's interesting because with the cyberbullying, you kind of say that that lives forever, right? It lives on the internet forever. But having done a TEDx, that lives on the internet forever as well. It's a similar kind of thing, right? Did you did you think about that part of it that that you're able to, in some ways, present who you are without having to have a conversation with everyone in the audience necessarily, an individual conversation? Absolutely. And that being a really powerful way for people to understand who I am coming directly from me instead of seeing me and having a preconceived notion or whatever that might be when you don't actually get to hear somebody's story or anything about what makes them them. And so I was really taken aback by that in a lot of ways that people were riveted and on the edge of their seat, listening to me at 15, sharing my life experience and literally just six minutes of my story. But that was all that I needed to see the possibility of what I could do with simply sharing my story, but also how it profoundly unlocks so many other things in the audiences that I'm speaking to, whether that is a group of banking executives seeing how 
empathy and inclusion is a vital business practice or speaking to a group of high school students, how powerful social media is and that your voice really does make a difference. That universal message, whatever specifically it was in this speech or uh, form of content that I decided to create, that showed me that we truly have an obligation to use what we've been given. And I'm really lucky that I discovered that at a young age, but you don't necessarily need to have some like life altering moment or circumstance or any of those things to, to like shake you up and have you realize who you truly are and all of the gifts that you were born with and the need to use that and share that with the world. And so that really is a, a huge part of what I'm after every single day. The, the, there's this moment, right? So you're you're on the TEDx stage, you're 15 years old. You have this amazing introduction. Uh, you know, the, the, the guy who's emceeing goes and talks to your parents, gets information from your parents after you talk. I mean, it's, it's this amazing moment. How do you reconcile the amazing moment then with the day-to-day? And, and do they do they come together? This moment when you're on stage versus the moment when you're the guy walking through the supermarket aisle. The, the part that was a huge disconnect was being on the highest of highs right after the TEDx happened and getting all of this press and people shouting me out on social media uh, tons of times and all of these things and going into school that Monday and being treated like such garbage and being reminded of the reality that I had. And I, I don't think I expected things to instantaneously shift from how bad they were. And just context was freshman year wasn't that bad in the grand scheme of things. It was a, a definite ground gradual um, downhill spiral where I definitely was getting a lot of cyberbullying and harassment and that sort of thing from quite frankly, the very first week of my freshman year, but it was nothing compared to the death threats and saying, midget, if you don't kill yourself, I'm gonna shank you in the kidney on Thursday or you're the ugliest thing I've ever seen. Nobody's ever gonna love you. Why don't you just go die? And quite frankly, I ended up absorbing so many of these messages that I was getting from my peers. And again, the majority of them being online and social media. And that became my story. That literally became the narrative that I adopted. And even though in the outside world, I was on stage sharing my story, being this super confident, um, very, you know, very strong guy in these audiences' eyes, I was experiencing such turmoil in my life because of that environment that I had to find myself in, because you, you can't really not go to high school. And at the time, I wasn't presented with any other choice in terms of when I told the school system how bad it was, they said, unfortunately, there's nothing else that we can do. You could either transfer schools or you can tough it out. And I said, I am 
pretty much in touch with reality that this is going to happen pretty much regardless of school that I'm at or community or whatever. But that doesn't negate the fact that it was such a huge factor for what it was doing to affect really everything in my life. And so it wasn't until I left that environment and made that massive shift that I was able to then truly transform the impact that I was able to have in, in such a real way in terms of getting laws passed and writing my book and all these things that I was very weighed down previously because of the mental health toll that all of this cyberbullying had on me. It's interesting. I, I like the idea of the universal message that 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 one you're different, which which in some ways is giving you the platform to affect a greater change, not just for yourself but for people in general. But it also is a thing that separates you in as hostile an environment as as high school can be when insecurity is running rampant and you're bringing people all together every you know five days a week right and and yeah. the people are there and it's like you probably wouldn't choose to be with a lot of these people if you had the choice but by circumstance you are now coupled with all of these people you're all you're all you're all brought into into the situation together did it force you you know, because you talk about the idea of living life on your own terms. This is the universal message of living life on your own terms. Did the cyberbullying, did the bullying force you to look at yourself and go, why is this happening? You know, can I get to the root of the problem? And how, how difficult or damaging or, you know, how, how did that work for you? Well, it really was a result of being so beaten down by the relentless messages from these students, like I just mentioned, how I'm never gonna find anyone that will love me or the fact that I'm so disgusting looking or whatever it was. And so- Which is over you too, right? I mean, they're saying things that you're probably worried about as well, right? Oh, hugely. I mean, as a teenager, we all can probably relate to desperately wanting to feel like we belong and feel accepted. And that's like, that's just a, a human being thing. And it's so much more amplified when you feel different. And so I really had to find myself first within all of that. And that was, that, that really came about after a lot of therapy and counseling through all of the experience and then afterwards, but also personal development where I took control of that narrative and my own story in the way that all of those bullies did previously. And so that is what really allowed me to recognize the fact that hurt people hurt people. And it's this never ending cycle that unfortunately I think has been in existence probably forever since humans have been around. Because the fact is, I don't think we're ever going to end bullying. That's not really possible. But if we could understand the root cause of it, which in my opinion is a combination of a lack of empathy, 
maybe not even understanding what empathy is, which is a huge issue in my opinion. But the other incredibly relevant factor, and I think in this day and age especially, is the mental health epidemic that exists within young people especially, and how social media has really amplified that to a whole new level that I think a lot of people don't understand how to react to and how bad it really is. So it's kind of twofold there, but the approach that I decided to take when I was 17 and had literally just gone through the worst of the worst was sharing my story in front of the Virginia General Assembly and state lawmakers because I clearly was not the only one that was going through something like this. And I not only was speaking up for myself, but I, I literally wanted to speak up for all of the other folks that were in some similar position that myself and my family was going through. And that is, I think in a lot of ways, that was my strength during that time because it gave me something to work towards in a period where I really had a lot of darkness and hopelessness and really no confidence in myself. Even though I gave that TEDx talk, I was already getting a lot of praise and attention and that sort of thing, but it didn't really mean anything to me because I didn't believe in myself. And so it was a result of all of that and successfully passing two laws that I very clearly saw that it is an empathy problem. And if we as a society can be more intentional about not only be, being empathetic towards others, but having empathy towards ourselves first and foremost, I think it's a game changer. And it is truly what can be the difference between somebody entering a very horrible cycle of spiraling downwards and hurting themselves or others, or not being able to continue with their life because of something that has happened to them. None of us deserve to stay stuck where we are. We should constantly have momentum and, and continue to grow through what we go through. But sometimes we get stuck in our own way and have to have somebody else help guide us to believing in ourselves again. And that was the case for me and it landed me here. And that was the case, like going through the therapy and, and those kinds of things that are the people who helped you. You're compressing a fair amount of time. I mean, this, this is one of those where it's like, this happened and we got to this point, but loving yourself, feeling powerful. I mean, some of these things, getting up on a, on a stage at a TEDx is, is a challenge. This idea of, of feeling powerful, of feeling loved, of feeling, you know, feeling, being able to, to speak honestly and vulnerably takes a lot of belief in yourself to be able to do that. And then also speaking to these legislators and, and, and being wanting to be part of what I'm listening from you is, is wanting to be part of the, of the change 
that'll happen as opposed to saying, I was bullied, this is wrong, you need to fix it, helping to affect, affect that change. How, how hard were those steps to be able to, to be able to be powerful, to be able to be, you know, to, to be honest and to be vulnerable when you had every reason to hide? For me, hiding and not speaking up felt so much worse than reliving some of those moments that I would never want to step back into. But that for me was enough to know that I had the ability simply by speaking up and sharing the experience of what I had gone through, that it could potentially create exponential change. And I don't necessarily think I went into testifying with the goal of saying, I'm going to get laws passed. I think it was more, I want to help these lawmakers understand how bad the problem actually is from somebody who went through it to a point where it almost ended me. Like I, I was very close to killing myself because I just reached the, the closest point to the end of my rope because of all of that. And that is the power and the reality of what so many students face. That was not only the case in 2017 when I first started testifying, but I know it's, it's even worse now. And so that is why curriculum and social and emotional learning resources are truly vital for understanding that cyberbullying, again, it can't necessarily be stopped and, and prevented from ever happening, but it can be addressed. And the root cause can definitely be touched on and learned so that we become better humans out of that. You went through an experience at a, at a young age that is, is demanding for anyone, anyone at any age to go through the kind of, the kind of being ostracized, that kind of thing in, you know, and, and, and not, yeah, just not feeling like you belong, not feeling like, like any one day is any different than any other day. When did you gain the perspective that your life could change, that you had the ability to actually change your life and affect the change and, and be happy? That's a good question. I, I honestly believe it probably was around the first time I attended a personal development event which was one of Tony Robbins' huge Unleash the Power Within seminars that he invited me to. And that totally shifted my perspective on just life in general and, and the personal power that we all have in the autonomy of being a human being. And that was so major to have at that point in my life again, at a time that I 
found myself at such a low point of no self-esteem. The narrative that was going on inside my head was, I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I'm not going to achieve the things that I want to achieve, that sort of thing. And quite literally, thought by thought, limiting belief by limiting belief, I was able to rewrite that narrative to one that was genuinely empowering and where I didn't have to beat myself up every single day saying that I'm not like those around me. So like whatever that BS story was inside my head, it was really toxic, really detrimental. And it, it was truly personal development after I got the tools first from therapy and counseling in terms of being able to reframe things and um, not get so stuck in your head with uh, thoughts that, that aren't meant to be there, like whatever that, that might be. It was therapy first that gave me the foundation, but then personal development that I was really able to stack everything else on top of. You talked about one of the first steps was, was really loving yourself was being okay with loving yourself and, and, and finding that power within you, which was, you know, in a lot of ways was taken away from you by your community. As you move forward, how were you able to give those people around you a chance? You know, so you wanted to love yourself, but how were you able to avoid the assumption that this is what that person's thinking about me. Yeah, that was incredibly intense, uh, to be honest with you. Getting myself to put the guard down that I had built up around me for so long because of what I had just experienced. And the fact that I really didn't let people in, in, a, in an intimate way, that I was being real with them and sharing the the dark thoughts that were coming my way at the time but i i think it definitely was me needing to get out of my own head and stop thinking that other people had the ability to control my life because nobody else gets to dictate the experience that we get to have in life but again it, it's like until you go through it yourself, you sometimes don't get to experience those lessons and learn it firsthand the way that we need to in order to, to live it. And self-love is something that I've been working on, quite frankly, all of my life. And I don't know if any of us ever get to a point of being so fully in love with every part of who we are that we don't self-sabotage, we don't get in our head, we don't have those toxic thoughts. Like that's what being a human being is and working through all of those things. But yeah, it being definitely a, a linear process that I'm learning every single day continuously what it means to love this person and not let anything else get in the way of that. But sometimes social media as well can very much alter what we think of ourselves 
because we are comparing what we're doing to those that we follow and thinking that the highlight reels that they're posting are not living up to what we're doing, like whatever that is, we can't compare our chapter one with somebody's chapter 20 and vice versa. We never really know what somebody is really going through. And that's why self-love is such an important thing for all of us to grasp at whatever level we are at, because that is what's gonna allow us to keep going, despite the things that come our way that are negative and put uh, a damper on things. We still have the ability to move through that. And self-love really is, the foundation of all of that. So in your everyday life now, are you able to go through, go, you know, you're, you went from Virginia to San Diego, you're out in San Diego, it's a new environment for you, you go someplace new, are you able to go someplace new without thinking everybody's staring at me? Um, well, here's the, the interesting thing. While I may not have those incessive thoughts that everyone is staring at me and they think that I'm weird and whatever, pretty much wherever I go, I still am stared at. And so it now is the difference of me taking that in a negative way versus understanding we're just inherently curious as people. And when we see somebody that we don't normally see on a daily basis, we're probably going to look at them. And so nine times out of 10, it's not a malicious thing when somebody is looking at me. But there is always going to be that one person, uh, whether I'm in very um, dynamic and accepting Southern California, or I'm in a pretty close-minded place. Um, people, unfortunately, don't know how to react sometimes. And that means they could do it in a pretty negative or mean way. And that could mean pulling out their phone and taking a video of me literally walking by them or getting out of my car in the disabled space when they see me in the parking lot. I mean, that I don't wanna lie and say that it doesn't get to me at times because I still am a human being with all of the emotions that we all have. And it would be a bit robotic to not let those things affect me in some way, I think. But as I now get older, I, I'm not letting it have so much control on me because again, I'm realizing it's not necessarily a mean or malicious or bad thing that they are doing, wanting to learn more or be curious. They may just not know how to express that in, in the proper way. I, I ask just because I've I've gone through that personal thing where I broke my back when I was 20 years old. I remember leaving the hospital and going to the mall for the first time and everybody was staring at me and I, oh no, like I've become the freak. I didn't, I didn't know. And, and now it's kind of like, you know, it's almost 33 years later, right? So I've had a little bit of time to figure stuff out or whatever. I'm going wherever I'm going. And occasionally I hear that moment of like, oh, wow, like, hey, what are you doing? Where are you going? And, I, and I'm like, I, I'm just doing what I'm doing, you know, and, it's, and, it, and it, it, it almost doesn't occur to me. But it's also interesting in the sense of, you know, sort of the unique sense of what you're talking about, too, where 
you hear these stories from rock stars and movie stars and people who are on the outside looking in. They were the freak. They were the, you know, and now, now they're like celebrated, right? They're, they're put on this pedestal. And some of that is having this, having this chip on their shoulder that I'm going to show you or I have an insatiable drive as a result of the way that I've been slighted. Do you feel that that gives you an advantage and a voice in a lot of ways? I think it can, depending again, how you frame the whole experience that you go through. We could either see things as stopping us right in our tracks and not being able to continue on because we are so devastated or we can learn from that experience and still go through all those emotions and grieve if we need to grieve and sit in those those things but not get stuck there and so for me that was I think a huge factor of understanding that like this is the reality of being somebody who is different but Ultimately, it's the story that you tell yourself that matters at the end of the day, not what other people's reactions are. And so I think the practice of learning to make the voice inside my head louder than people around me, whether that was the comments that I heard passing by, or I mean, even like social media comments or messages that I continuously get. Um, just for putting myself out there and the fact that I am the way that I am and whatever, th that uh, is always going to be a thing. But I think you're exactly right. It's how we learn to cope and manage with how that exists and what it means to show up as the full version of who you are, despite all of those other things. We talked about, you went through the emotional journey in order to get on stage. You had to, you had to find a way to love yourself. You had to find that power within you. But you also talked about, it was three months between when you met this woman while you were on your trip until the TEDx, until you were actually on the stage. And I watched your speech. I mean, you were, you were eminently comfortable on the stage. You did not, you looked like you enjoyed yourself. You were able to, to joke with the audience. How did you go from not being on stage to being prepared to be on stage to effectively being a professional speaker? Well, the process to give a TEDx talk I underestimated, and I say that very lightly because it was so freaking intense. The requirements and the fact that I had obviously never written a talk before or given a talk, so having to know and get the content right, but then worry about the delivery and, and all of that, I do feel I was in a very fortunate position going into it because I had an acting background since I was eight in terms of doing a lot of community theater and the acting bug was something that was was very real within me so 
I had a lot of those stage skills and the ability to communicate and, and be in front of an audience. But of course, I never was myself. I was always playing a character. And so that was very new to me, stepping on stage in front of an audience as Brandon for the first time and really not knowing how anyone would react to. But I honestly believe the second I rolled on stage and I say rolled because I, of course, went in on my mobility device, um, which was a, a very badass entrance, I've got to say. Um, and so I had this level of like, this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. This is where I was put here. This is what I was put here to do. And this is where I should be right here and right now. And all of the nerves and thinking like, how are people going to react? What's gonna happen? It all seemed to fade away and quiet. And I gave that talk and it, again, was only six minutes, but that showed me so much about what I could do with my life. And it was the catalyst really that propelled me forward. I think everybody wants to have that moment of this is where I'm supposed to be. This is what I'm supposed to do. How did you recognize it as that moment? What was the feeling or what was the energy or how did you recognize it? The fact, honestly, that I was in the moment right then and there, I wasn't in my head thinking, what if I mess up? What if I don't remember and I stumble and blah, 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 blah. Like none of that really was a thing in the moments leading up to that talk. That definitely was real in the days prior. And, and I had those anxious thoughts looming, but I think my ability to psych myself in, not psych myself out in terms of like, what's going to go wrong? Um, how am I going to mess up? Like all of those stupid questions that anxiety and overthinking can make us ask ourselves. Instead, I think my, my ability to, to overcome the circumstances that came my way with a mindset of resilience and having grit throughout, I think that was also a huge factor in how I prepared myself leading up to it because I didn't assume the worst possible scenario. I think it was kind of the other, the, the opposite of that in terms of thinking, just show up as you and do exactly what you know you need to do in terms of I, I memorized the entire thing. And that was, again, a, a huge blessing from what came from the acting stuff. Um, and, and I think all of the, all of the process with that, needing to get it right and making sure that I followed things in order and, and all of that, it was really helpful in a lot of ways because I had a structure that I needed to follow. And I almost didn't have time to overthink and to like to worry about how I could mess up because I needed to focus on delivering. And so that 
in combination with being so focused and in the moment with where I was in that environment, I think it just allowed me to really take in the magnitude of what that moment really was of first stepping on stage and delivering the lines for the first couple of seconds and feeling truly at ease because I think it could have gone a whole different direction if I was really in my head about it and I was worried about what was going to happen or what wasn't going to happen. It's interesting that you talk about that being in the moment was the captivating part and the catalyzing part, the part that made you think, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm in the exactly the right place. I'm doing the right thing. Because it also, if you look at the flip side of that, right, that pain is, is the thing that keeps us in the moment more than anything. And it's in a moment that we often want to try to escape, right? So, so being in the pain, being bullied where you're never actually able to be free of it is, is being in that moment as well. But this is, this is then a transformational moment. And then also talking about the idea of, of grit and resilience where it sounds like in some ways, that's okay because it's a reflection of what you need to earn in order in order to really be fulfilled. Am, am I filling in the gaps? Is that is that fair enough? I think so too, because again, sometimes until we are presented with these situations in which the universe or life teaches us these lessons firsthand, that I think is everything in terms of self-awareness and knowing where you're at, both with where you've been and where you're going as well, but not staying stuck where you are. You, you say that there's no reason you shouldn't be doing what you love. How are you different than other people? I don't think I've been asked that before. Well, Good. I think the, I think the first part of that that immediately comes to mind is the fact that I'm one of 84 people in the entire world to ever be born with this condition. And so I, in a lot of ways, I'm kind of writing history. I'm, I'm charting my own course with helping other people, not only that have this condition or have dwarfism or, or any disability even, but I think just having humanity, this is my hope, see that we don't need to be defined or confined by any label or life circumstance or things that happen to us, but instead we get to really set the definition of who we are. And then I think the, the other part of how I would answer that is I have lived a very accelerated life in the short amount of time that I've been here already. And I think in a lot of ways, it gives me this enhanced perspective and the maturity that I've had for quite a while. But in a lot of ways, it also has been a, a huge challenge because it makes it hard to connect with peers um, and to make friends who are my age and that sort of thing. But I do understand that all of what makes me, me is 
who I'm supposed to be. I'm not trying to make that rhyme, but it did rhyme. Um, I, I'm really proud of the person that I am in all of the different areas that I show up as me. And I'm now, I feel like I'm, I'm fully living that version of myself. And since I moved out to California three months ago, I really have felt so comfortable with being able to be me in the fullest version of who I am. And that feels just really freaking amazing. And we all, my hope is that we all could reach that place too, that we don't feel like we have to be limited or not show the true colors of who we really are because of what we think people around us are gonna react um, or any of the other things that may stop us from truly showing up. It, it genuinely has been life-changing being able to be the fullest version of who I am and, and practice what I preach to such a genuine extent where I am loving myself to such a genuine level now that it's just awesome. And I want to share it with as many people as I can. It's interesting. You say practice what you preach is empathy, something that came easily to you. Cause in a lot of ways, I mean, you were being shunned. You were being, you were being tortured. Why do you want to be empathetic to somebody who is brutalizing you? Did, did it come easily to you? Is it, is it something you had to work on? How did that I, I want to be like as, as honest as I can here. The way that I used to respond to the bullies, I would tear into them. I would fight fire with gasoline. Like if somebody looked at me the wrong way that I perceived, I would flip. Like I, I would say F you, who the F do you think you are? And this is all like, you know, online or whatever, but um. I mean, I, I just was a really angry adolescent because I didn't have any outlet. I didn't really have any way to process all of these really, really complex emotions that were constantly flooding my brain. Um, and so that I think was, yeah, that was, it was tough. Um, but it, it also, I think, it taught me what real empathy is because I saw that if you're going to be an a-hole back to those that are being horrible to you, you're not going to be in any better position. It's only going to make things worse. And was there a precipitating event that, that made you realize this, that you said, I can't, I can't be fighting fire with gasoline. I have to, be the bigger person. I have to understand that this other person is coming from a position of discomfort within themselves, and 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 flip the the paradigm. How did how did that happen in a moment? Do you ever? Um, I I think it probably was around the eighth grade when I was about fourteen, and I reached a point of quite frankly having no friends. I was very alone felt like I had nobody to talk to, nobody to hang out with. And I think it came from asking myself why that was and realizing that I am not a nice person. And if I want to have friends, 
I've got to change the way that I am. And also like, I can't expect people to be nice to me if I'm, because I, a lot of the reason too, that I felt the need to be this way was to protect myself. But I was so wrong in thinking that that was doing anything to actually protect me or make things better. Um, and so it really was that introspection that allowed me to see, dude, you've, you've got to change. And the only person that is going to make that happen is you. So I went into high school with a totally new approach, um, really wasn't a mean person, wasn't the, the same guy that I used to be in terms of trying to act tough, um, letting things roll off me without being affected. But that clearly didn't do anything um, to alleviate the cyberbullying per se, but- In the moment necessarily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what it did allow me was to make friends and to have actual conversations with people. And even though I never really had close friends in high school, that was enough for me when I was going through some of really the, the worst years to not be completely isolated in that was everything. And I think it was because of the fact that I saw I needed to shift. I needed to totally change my approach here if I wanted different results. And I saw different results in one way, but then in the other area, obviously it continued, but I was, I had the incentive enough because of the friendships and the, the positive interactions, quite frankly, that I was now having that this is the person that I should continue to be and to stay far away from living in anger or trying to act like the tough guy because that doesn't do anything. What for you, you've moved to San Diego, what, what are the next five to 10 years look like? in your mind what's really cool about where i'm at now in my life is that i feel like i'm doing exactly what i should be doing right now because i have so much passion in the work that i do and so quite frankly i want to continue following wherever my passion lies and so if that goes into more book writing rather than focusing on speaking in a few years then that will be the, the main thing that I do. But at this point, I get to dip my feet in all of these, not all of these, but a bunch of these buckets that I'm really fired up by, whether that's the speaking world or writing books, as I just had my second book come out a couple months ago. Now that's a children's book, right? The, the second book? It is. Why, why, why speak to children? Obviously, self-love, as we've talked about continuously in this conversation, is so important to how I live my life. And in thinking over the last year and a half, what the world needs now more than ever in terms of positive messages that really make a difference, I thought self-love is one of those things that not really talked about, not taught in school. And so why not create a universal 
message that not only is for kids, but also is just as powerful for the grownups reading it. And that's been the coolest feedback because I obviously writ, uh, <laughs> I wrote it for uh, a youth audience because that is the, the main demographic of this publisher, a kid's book about, they release really amazing messages all about uh, racism, bullying, mental health, disabilities, amazing topics. And so self-love was one of those things that I, I definitely used my personal experience with going from having no self-love when I was younger working on that and now being at a place that I'm proud to be me and how we all should learn to love the awesome things that exist within us, even if that means that we're different or that we are unlike those that are around us because that's what makes us us. And so I, I really, I just want to continue to use all of these things that I've been given that I know it's, it's like not just about my story, but I think it's what my story can allow others to see within themselves and the world around them that continues to want to make me put myself out there despite, you know, I, I still am receiving a lot of negativity online on a pretty frequent basis. Um, like none of that has kind of gone away, but as you can see, I am at a place personally that I've been working on myself so much that a lot of those same comments that I used to get as a teenager that would totally stop me and fill my head with all of these horrible thoughts. Now, I mean, yeah, it, it may make me upset for a few minutes, but then I move on and I know how to shift my focus. And that is a huge gift that I haven't always had, but I've had to work on. And I think that is a reminder to all of us that we don't need to change everything for everything to change. Sometimes it's the really small things that we can decide to do on a daily basis. Like, I don't know, meditating for five minutes, using one of those guided apps that help you just sit there, listening to music before or after work. Something so simple can genuinely have the most profound difference on the life that you live. And I continuously see that through my own experience. And I'm trying to really give myself the best life that I can so that I'm able in turn to have the most exponential impact on the world around me that I can. You talked a little bit about grit, about resilience. Is, is this grit and resilience that gets you to the point where you're putting your voice out there, where you're writing your book, where you're sharing your story? Is, is it also, is it taking a risk? It, what which part of that? How do you how do you look at at that part of it? I honestly think all of those things are a factor in the process because without well, first off, without grit, you wouldn't be able to continue on despite people not believing in you or, or having negative feedback or things not go according to plan all the time. 
but also being able to go into the unknown and take risks is huge because quite frankly, there is no indication of what tomorrow is going to bring, what next year, uh, what results are going to come about if we decide to release a project into the world or whatever those specific things are. So that, in my opinion, should be a huge amount of motivation to not be held back by the what ifs or the things that could potentially go wrong. Because quite frankly, all of the things that could go wrong, all of those things can go right. And a whole bunch of things can go right. But it only starts when you decide to take the risk and pull the trigger. And so even if, let's say you're starting a new business and it's really slow in the first few months, you only have a few customers, but you continue to go and you stay focused and you build and you build. And that turns out to be a multi-million dollar company in three years. But it's the fact that you stayed on course and you didn't allow slow results or things not being up to par to exactly what you'd like to deter you. And I think that is entirely what resilience and grit allow us to do so that we don't get sidetracked by things that do go wrong. And that's inevitable. It is always going to happen. So it's truly up to you how you decide to look at it and either use all of those things the the feedback, the results that aren't um, exactly what you'd like, things that go negative, like wrong, whatever, put all of that together and make it better and learn from that. And that's entirely up to us. And so that is the process that I've, I think, continuously adopted that I don't necessarily know what is going to happen when I put out my next book or I eventually released a documentary or like whatever it is. I don't know how people are going to react. I don't know how people are going to react to me, but I know that I'm not for everybody, but at the same time, I am for those that are ready to hear my message and take it and do something with it. And those are the people that I'm going to continue putting my energy towards. Um, and, and I think that should be a mindset that we all adopt as well, not trying to pry open doors that are trying to shut on us. If something is not meant for us, then we should not try and surround ourselves in it. We should focus on what is meant for us. And I believe the universe will present those things when the timing is right. You said that you, you just wrote your second book and, and you're writing for the kids, but you're writing for the parents as well. But who's the, who's the audience that you're writing to? Like when you're alone and you're writing, who, who is, is, is listening to that? Who needs to hear that? In some ways, is it you as a middle school kid that you're writing to or, or is it somebody else? You know, quite frankly, I, I honestly believe it depends on who I'm trying to reach that day. And I'm not trying to sound like out there when I say that, but I'm the type of person that I go from, like I mentioned, giving a talk to a few hundred uh, 
executives and then the next day going to a school and talking about something totally different, but having a social media audience that is literally everywhere in between. So being able to really take myself back as much as possible to those stories and the experiences, like when I was eight years old and double leg casts at, um, for six months at a time in a wheelchair because I had very major leg surgery that caused the bones in my legs to be broken and then put back together with metal hardware. Um, you know, thinking back to what that was, that, that was actually like um, as much as possible and being able to speak on that, but also where I am now as a 22 year old young man who is really sitting with all of these things. And, and I've reached a point of being where I am now in terms of having this level of confidence and assurance that I don't think I've ever had before. And that is also where I, I come from as well, sitting in that and knowing that even if I reach one person with a post or whatever it is that I'm doing and that one person needs to hear the message that day, that is all that I need to do. Where can people reach you? Where can they find your books? Um, I hang out on Instagram the most. So my username is just my last name at Farbstein, F-A-R-B-S-T-E-I-N. And then my brand new kids book is on a kids book about uh, .com. But if you also just search a kids book about self-love, on Google, it will be the first thing that comes up. So no need to like remember the link or anything like that. It should be right there for you. Brandon, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Absolutely. This was awesome, Chris. Well, thank you. Well, I look forward to meeting you in person. We've done this virtually through Zoom and hopefully we'll connect later on in the future and good luck as you continue to move forward and tell your story. And seek as big a stage as you possibly can. So well done. Thank you. And, uh, you know, happy holidays as well. Thank you so much. Happy holidays. All right. Uh, thank you to all of you for tuning in. We hope you appreciate it as well. The greatest gift you can give us talking about the holidays is if you would like or follow us, tell your friends, this will be a traditional podcast later on. So you'll find it on YouTube on Apple on Spotify, all the usual suspects. And, and we hope that you continue to come back. If you didn't get a chance to see the whole interview, it will also be archived on the One Revolution Foundation page on Facebook. So you can go there and watch Brandon and me talk with each other. So Brandon, thanks again. Have a great time and look forward to seeing you soon. Appreciate you, Chris. Thanks so much.